Uh, back in the 1990s, nearly every driver had one of these in their automobiles, their cars. If not, they had one in their home. It's really what they depended on uh, to get to a new destination, uh, navigate some new part of the state or, or country, and that is Rand McNally's Road Atlas. Now, young people in Atlas, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, but if you don't know what an Atlas is, it's basically a book filled with maps. And I can remember in the mid-1990s, uh, having obtained my license, but just before really the internet boom, before Google Maps, I remember sitting down with my dad, with my father, and unfolding physical maps at times, highlighting particular roads and highways in preparation uh, for my traveling to get to some particular uh, location that I was going to be driving to. Well, then came MapQuest, Google Maps. You could put away the physical map. People were probably not using them as much. Now all you needed was to type in uh, your location and your destination, and a simple set of turn-by-turn instructions would be printed off, and you could just use that to get from point A to point B. You don't need a map. You just have the directions. Turn here, turn there. Now, you don't even need that, right? You just take your device, you speak the address into your phone, and some person with whatever accent, I think, uh, that you prefer will tell you, turn here, turn there, turn around, you missed your turn. So we're now living at a time where you can reach your intended destination, and it's happened to me several times, and not really know where you are. You just know. You've arrived. You've arrived. Well, in like manner, the moral, the spiritual geography and landscape all around us is filled with people who do not know where they are. They've followed the voices of the culture, and they have ended up in some spiritual, moral location. But they are disoriented. They are disoriented. They're lost. Their spiritual or moral compass is broken. It's not answering many of the questions, the most important questions that, that, this, that the culture has. Well, as we continue in Daniel into chapter 9 now, uh, coming to the end of the 70-year exile, Daniel needed orientation, stability, bearings, understanding for him to be able to live out his faith and to flourish in his faith given his situation. And what he does is exemplary for us. And it certainly reflects the character of our Lord Jesus Christ at times in his ministry. We've heard the longer prayer read in the Old Testament reading from Elder Brian. A wonderful prayer. I would encourage you to use that prayer as a framework for your own prayer life. But now we pick up at verse 20. And so this whole chapter is a prayer and a prophecy. So verse 20 to 27. Verse 20, listen to God's Word. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, 
whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, or seventy-sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two more weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That seventieth week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, what do you take with you? What few items would you take in your hands that you could carry if your house was going up in flames? Or if your town worse yet, or city was being besieged. I have an older pastor uh, friend who told me a story a number of years ago uh, of what happened to him and his family in the early 2000s. In fact, it was this particular year. It was Easter weekend. It was Saturday night. They had extended family in town, and they were staying with them. Though they did not know it, a fire had begun in between the walls in their house, and it was spreading more and more, while they lay fast asleep. The next morning comes, Easter morning, and a fire kind of emerges, kind of a small explosion in the basement, finally breaks through uh, the walls. The flames are growing and growing. They're beginning to, of course, panic, and they anxiously make their way out of the house. Here they are, family, extended family, some friends are standing outside, and they are seeing their house, a house that they had designed themselves and built, go up in flames. And my pastor friend, Ron, says to me, Will, you would not believe what would enter your mind while seeing your house go up in flames. My sermon notes. It's Easter morning, and it's in his mind, I left my notes on the kitchen table. He goes back in. He goes back in to get his notes. He's thinking, i got a sermon to preach. All right, what a pastor will do Easter morning. Well, in a related way, when Daniel and his companions were exiled by the Babylonians nearly 70 years prior to the events that we're reading about here in chapter 9, they had brought with them out of a burning house, if you will, that which was most precious, most valuable, most necessary. It's what Daniel calls in verse 2 of this chapter, the books. The books. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books. 
I think the whole of this chapter hangs on these words, on verse 2. And so here we're given a glimpse, all right, a, a little uh, deeper inside look at the man, the character of Daniel. When taken from their homeland, the exiles took with them the books, the scrolls, the letters of what they had of the Word of God, and likely copying them for one another's use. Uh, there's little doubt that just as often as Daniel prayed, recall back in chapter 6, he went to his, to his room, windows opened toward Jerusalem three times a day, as he normally did. That was his habit. That was his devotional life. So we learned as often as he was praying, I think he's poring over the books. He's poring over God's Word. Daniel, we know, had been given visions by God. He is set apart. He could interpret dreams that the Lord uh, allowed him to or caused him to. So he is given visions by God. But as one author said, as we read carefully through the account of his life, his religion was much more radically book religion than it was vision religion. Daniel's not only committed to, but he's dependent upon the Word to navigate, to understand how to live in his context, in exile. Where to get his motive, his fuel for living his faith. And, and like Daniel, it can feel sometimes increasingly like we're living in foreign territory, exile. Uh, the cultural ground beneath us is moving more and more. The messages in the world about life's purpose, who people are, human identity, family and relationships can be so powerful they simply swallow people whole. Unless you have a different word that's animating your mind and animating your heart. But the books for Daniel here mentioned in verse 2, and this is so critical, meant a whole lot more than a simple means of answering questions or problems about theology or dates about particular times that God would would work. Now, God's people are to invest in the Word for understanding. We read and heard from Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need understanding as to who God is, His character, how He has worked, how He continues to work in creation and redemption our own calling. But what happens when Daniel commits himself observing and understanding the Word? In other words, how does the Word work in his life? Right? We're not simply to work the Word. The Word is to work us. That's what happens. You see it from verse 2 into verse 3, the beginning of his prayer. So he says, I perceived and understood in the books. And then verse 3, what does he do? Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy. That's the beginning, verse 3, of, as we know, a lengthier prayer of 17 or so verses, which we'll examine. But something so critical to see is that inseparable bond and relationship between the Word and prayer. Our life in relationship with the Lord is a communication. Speaking one to another. The Lord speaks to us. And we're to speak and cry out to Him. 
So after giving his attention to the word, examining and inquiring here, we're told in Jeremiah, as to the timing, the length, the end, when will the exile end, Daniel is moved to seek after God in prayer. And, And this is what every believer does when they first come to faith in Christ. The gospel rests upon them. They receive it. They repent. They trust in the Lord. And then they, they cry out to Him in praise and, and in prayer. And that leads to another point which John Calvin emphasizes in one of his lectures. He gave dozens of lectures on the book of Daniel. And he emphasizes something. He says, "...the faithful do not so acquiesce in the promises of God as to grow torpid." Now, some of us may know what that word means, torpid. I'm, I'm confident some of us don't. Uh, it's not a, a word we hear very often or at all. Of course, neither it is, a word, is it a word that Calvin uh, used, given that I don't think he spoke in English or wrote in English. I know he wrote his institutes first in Latin and, and then, then into French. But it's a word the Calvin Translation Society in Edinburgh, Scotland, chose when they translated his work in the middle of the 19th century. Torpid. It means mentally or physically inactive, lethargic, dormant, hibernating. The faithful, when God reveals His promises, in other words, don't lie down in complacency or carelessness. They're stimulated to prayer and praise. That's a point about how we respond to the, to the revelation, to the Word, to the promises of our God. What happens to us? If, if one's spouse or parent or friend goes on a long-distance journey, an extended business trip or deployment, and they say, this, this is when I'm coming back. This is when I will return. And, and the friend or child or spouse left behind has little to no longing right, for their return or little anticipation. What does it reveal about their heart? Their relationship. Well, when Daniel learned in his reading, in his meditation upon God's Word in Jeremiah, which is Jeremiah 25, where we learn about these 70 years, that according to the Lord, the desolation of Jerusalem and the exile would last for 70 years. And Daniel's realizing that time is approaching. He turns to the Lord in prayer. I think it's important to recognize this is not one of his normal set times of prayer. As, as was mentioned in chapter 6, three times a day. This is a, this is, this is a special time. And we know it's a special time because it's accompanied, we're told, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So this is a prayer in a time that's intensified, if you will, by these actions. He's expressing Mourning in a repentant heart. And in the prayer itself, Daniel pours his heart out, verse after verse after verse, to the point that it almost seems that he forgets about uh, the date of the end of exile. In fact, he tells us in verse 20 that while he was praying, the angel Gabriel comes to him to reveal insight and understanding. You know something is going right in your devotional life when in the middle of it, an angelic messenger shows up, okay? Uh, But then again, this is Daniel. This is Daniel. 
I mention that because the prophet Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel, also in exile, among the exiles, as the Lord in Ezekiel 14 confronts the idolatry and sin of God's people, he says this, When a land sins against me, acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against them, even if these three men, Noah, Job, and Daniel, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. That's not to suggest that that they had the the, the spiritual gumption or righteousness to save themselves, but it, it indicates just how holy and godly these men were. And we can learn from Daniel's prayer here. One, his prayer can help save us from a self-centered individualism. An individualism that so defines, in, in many ways, the culture all around us. You may have noticed, but Daniel's prayer, like the Lord's prayer, is much more a we prayer than it is an I prayer. Jesus taught us to pray our Father. We're to pray that individually. Our Father who art in heaven and corporately. Here we see the, the, the plural pronoun used throughout this prayer. Verse 5 and 6. O Lord, we have sinned. We have not listened. Verse 8. To us belongs open shame. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed. Though Daniel is a godly man, he's a holy man as mentioned by Ezekiel, and certainly prays as an individual. If you look at verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord and made confession. Indeed, Daniel, of all people in Scripture, knows and feels the loneliness of his situation. But how does he pray? He prays as one in a community. So critical. A community whose history, hope, and destiny would be his own. Praying as one in community and for the community. That's not only kind and loving, it's biblical and wise to pray that way and to think that way. It's man's tendency, like school children in class, who, when the teacher says, who, who threw that? Or who's making the ruckus? All the children point the finger elsewhere. It's not me. I'm not the guilty one. Think about Daniel. He's including himself. He sees himself as a part of this community who have transgressed the Lord. And this is not to say God doesn't view us as individuals and that we're individually accountable to Him. It is to say that the church's exile is your exile. The church's pain is your pain. The church's joy and hope is to be your joy and hope. So this prayer, among other things, wakes us up to the fact that something much bigger and greater than ourselves is going on. And if we want to see the hand of God at work most clearly, we're called to commit ourselves to that community. The community does not merely exist for me or you, but we exist for the community. We also see in this prayer two main elements that really fill it out, that comprise it. One is confession. 
verse 5, 6, 11, 14, and 15 all express confession. But look at verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong. But he doesn't stop there. He, almost as if adding kind of one brick upon another, one weight upon another. He uses not one, but a few Hebrew words to communicate the seriousness of our impiety. And the first word for we have sinned, a ketanu, is a serious crime of offense. So this is not walking down the hallway and kind of carelessly bumping into someone and saying, oh, oh, pardon me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's a weightiness to this. We're in a sense criminals, transgressors, rebels at heart. But he then goes on and says, we have acted wickedly. More so, we have rebelled. And part of the reason I stress this, or rather Daniel expresses this, not only is it true, but because life, restoration, strength, anew for God's people does not come through man's vision or a philosophy of ministry or human creativity or innovation, as important as God may use those things. It comes fundamentally through contrition, a broken-heartedness, seeing ourselves as first sinners in need of the mercy of God. That's the foundation. We can't manufacture or manipulate uh, restoration and growth in our own lives or in the life of the body of Christ. God is about our heart. Times of renewal, forgiveness, refreshment come through that process. But it's not all confession. What's the other aspect in this prayer? It's supplication. Pleas, petitions. When Daniel says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord, he means I asked. One author said this, God seeks fellowship with us as the father who wants his children to be always asking for what he promises, what he promises to give. Verse 16, let your anger, uh, wrath be turned away. Verse 17, listen to the prayer of your people and his pleas for mercy. And note the second half of verse 17, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. As Daniel faces Jerusalem, where the temple once stood, where common, sinful, guilty Israelites would journey to offer animal sacrifice for their sin and then confess their sin, and thus in the sacrifice of the animal, pouring out of the blood, their sin was transferred to the victim as a substitute, and the priest would then offer words of assurance. It was all to show that when people approach God for forgiveness and communion, there had to be a putting to right of sin, an atonement. And so Daniel is making a plea. The temple is desolate. In, in, in a way, I have no sacrifice to offer, yet may your face shine. May your grace shine forth. Verse 18, we don't offer our pleas because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We might say, may you, Lord, provide the sacrifice. 
And this is what we have at the table of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross of Christ I, I claim. The prophecy that God reveals concerning the end of exile, the return of, to Jerusalem, according to verse 2, and the prophet Jeremiah, is 70 years. That, that's what Daniel picks up on. And in a way, that's true. The first wave of exiles began to return to Jerusalem under the decree of Cyrus by, by the word of the Lord in 539. But what God reveals in verse 24 and following is that the true end of exile, what the angel reveals by saying, when the Lord will put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, would not be 70 years, but verse 24, 70 weeks, or as most understand it to mean 70 sevens, 490 years. Essentially, many would understand it to mean the time between the exile of the Jews and the coming of the Messiah. Verse 25, understand that from the going out of the word to restore Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 more weeks, it shall be built again. Seven, 62, that's 69. It leaves one week. Verse 26, after the seven and the 62, an anointed one shall be cut off, likely referring to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, or, or in the midst of that 70th week. When you turn the page to chapter 10, there's a reason we find Daniel lying down for three weeks. Mourning. He's overwhelmed. The, the, the visions can be very heavy and challenging, confusing, daunting. But, but I want to leave you with this, and it's the question of God's timing or assurance. Dates or assurance. You see, at the beginning of the chapter... Daniel wanted to know one primary thing. Verse 2, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years of exile. He wanted to know the date. When will this end? But as he gives himself to the Word, pouring over the Word, seeking the Lord in prayer, he had a reordering of his desires and, and priorities. Through his longer prayer, he soon forgets about the dates, and he simply is crying out to the Lord that he might have assurance in light of man's most fundamental problem. That's what the believer needs. Assurance in the light of our most fundamental problem. And that is, can God, will God, forgive such a people who have such a history? Will God forgive such a people who have such a history? And will God take seriously the prayer of just one member of such a, a sinful community? Yes. Yes. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. 
Delay not for your own sake, O my God. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him. Let's pray. O Lord, how we praise You for Your great compassion and mercy most clearly displayed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that You, by Your Spirit, would lead us, Lord, into deeper and longer seasons of crying out to You, shaping us, Lord, in the likeness of Christ and His heart, His sacrificial living and His devotion to You. May our lives reflect that and may they reflect, Lord, the heart of what we see in Daniel. Lord, move deep within us that we would have a growing desire and passion, Lord, to seek You, to know more of the depth of Your love and mercy, more the depth of our own sin, and that we would be convicted, that we would respond, and Lord, that You would grow our assurance, causing us to delight in the things that You have done who You are, You're calling upon us. And we pray, O Lord, that, that our own prayers would be with that, uh, that corporate body in mind. That, that we are a part, united and a part of one uh, body with one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit again ourselves to You, O Lord, uh, this day. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.